So friends, here we are, Saturday night. What are you doing on Saturday night? Oh, nothing much. And if we were on a normal, normal quote, retreat, typical retreat here at Spirit Rock, many centers, we'd be home doing something different on a Saturday night, wouldn't we? We'd have arrived, we arrived a week ago today, sat here together for the first time last Saturday. But here we're just settling in, right? Do you feel you're just settling in? Quite a few people I've spoken to in the last couple of days have been saying things like that. I'm finally a little less sleepy. I'm finally kind of out of this fog of resistance or restlessness. And I've been saying to many people, it takes longer to settle into a long retreat. There's something about the whole psyche that knows what we're getting into, that it needs this preparation time. I'm sorry if you're new to this, I hate to, well, I should warn you. Um, And the phrase came to me as I was talking to someone, oh, it's like the shakedown phase. Have you heard of that? It's like if you have a new craft, an airplane or a ship or something, car even, a race car, before you actually get it out on the road or the water, you do this shakedown phase where you test, are all the systems okay? Is everything going to survive this stress, this challenge? And, and you know, you know, you put it through its paces. Well, this first week is our shakedown phase with the hindrances rolling through and all of the challenges that we have settling in. And the good news is you passed, right? Because you're still here, right? I don't know what shape you're in, but you're still here. So, but this this week of practice is so important, you know, where there usually are a lot of hindrances, as we've spoken about, the challenges of sleepiness and restlessness and doubt, etc. It is, it's not like the preparatory practice. I like the quote Guy uh, used in his talk last night, Um, that our practice is about decreasing the habits of mind that cause suffering. In fact, that is the only practice. And that's what we've been doing this week, is really looking at where do we struggle, how do we suffer, what are those places of rub or challenge, and how do we work skillfully with that. And this is such great um, instruction for us as we continue to deepen, because the hindrances just don't disappear. Like Monday morning, they're gone, you know, no. They're, as we often call them, our old friends, the hindrances, they'll still be here. They might just be in different forms, perhaps sometimes more subtle, perhaps sometimes they'll roll through with a roar. Sylvia Borstein will often talk about practice and say, before you get to that vast, spacious mind, you have to go through the asteroid belt where you kind of get dinged up a little, you know. But then, we might still a little be in the asteroid belt. But I think we're settling in. You know, the staff, people who come and drop into this space with us are all commenting how quiet people seem, how still. So it is, there is a process underway here. There is settling in. And we're starting to feel the power of this training, of training the attention to notice what's happening, of cultivating these qualities of mind and heart, like the Brahma Viharas, metta that we're doing every afternoon, um, to see the power that this actually does work, that we can create this clarity of intention, this directing of attention, either for insight to know what's happening in our experience or in the Brahma Viharas, training the heart towards a, 
um, specific attitude, loving, kind, friendly attitude, and that it works. Often when we do training, we're either training physically, some kind of athletic pursuit, maybe something creative, something more physical. We've often trained the mind in different ways, but usually for a specific skill, for an occupation that we're going to undertake, or to learn a language, or you know, study history or economics or whatever. So we've done these kinds of trainings, but they've been for usually some kind of external purpose or function. Here we're training the mind, using the mind to understand the mind. So it's kind of this referential process. And we're not only using it to understand the mind, we're using it to improve the quality of the mind, the very functioning of the mind itself. But as Andrea Feller would often, often say, as we're doing that, we're using an imperfect tool, <laughs> right? We're using the mind, this crazy mind, to try and improve the mind. So we have to do this with a lot of kindness and a lot of patience, which is what I'm going to be talking about tonight. But as far as training, the Buddha had these inspiring or motivating lines where he said, if it wasn't possible for you to do so, for you to train in this way, I would not ask you to do so. But it is possible. So I say, train in this way. This is possible. So I wanted to talk tonight about patience because it is such a helpful quality for us. And it's one of what we call the paramis in Pali or the ten perfections they're known as. And these are qualities of heart and mind that were developed by the Buddha in his pre-Buddha lifetimes where he was a um, bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be. And these previous lives have been all compiled in what's called the Jataka Tales, this volume compendium of almost like folk tales or mythological tales where the Buddha was uh, born into all these different um, manifestations, a lot of animals, elephants and monkeys and buffalo, and sometimes people, but uh, eons of these lives where he perfected these paramis, these perfections. And so uh, they're they're very inspiring uh, lists of these qualities that it said enabled him to sit that night under the Bodhi tree and come to the awakening that he came to. And, but even though the Buddha talks about them a lot in his, from his own experience and encouraging people to develop. And this list, as a list, isn't in the suttas that we uh, take our teachings from, the Pali Canon. Though, as I say, each individual quality is there a lot. The Buddha was always talking about them. They became more central with Mahayana practice and the Bodhisattva um, practices that became uh, very much part of Tibetan practice particularly, but it's in our tradition. Both the paramis and the bodhisattva vow or attitude are definitely there in the Theravadan tradition. And for us as lay people, it's also a great map for practice. It's a great list for giving us guidelines as to what's important, what do we need to cultivate, what will be helpful for us on our journey. And why it's good is it 
includes basically every aspect of our lives. The inner development cultivation and the wisdom and the, the um, tra- meditation training, equanimity, etc. But also how we are in the world, how we are with other people, how we are in our relationships. And it's said that these practices and trainings, when they're brought to fruition, prepare the mind for liberating insight. The mind becomes ripe, ready, and that's what happened with the Buddha, enabled him to come to his full awakening. So the paramis are these beautiful qualities like generosity, ethical conduct, the precepts that we take on retreat, renunciation, wisdom, metta, uh, equanimity, truthfulness, determination, energy. These are the, the paramis, and one of them is patience. Kanti is the Pali word. And when you hear that list, I'm sure they resonate a little because they're what we value or what, what good human beings everywhere cultivate, whether they consciously do it or not. These are kind of human values, right? Even though you know, we can make a list and say it's a Buddhist list, they're human values and all human beings that cultivate the heart and mind to any depth will have cultivated these qualities. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's a scholar, academic, and deep practitioner, is a monk who has a monastery down in San Diego. He does a lot of translations and study guides, especially on this uh, website, Access to Insight, which we recommend. He's compiled a study guide on these uh, perfections, taking um, readings from the suttas, you know, so all of the ten qualities and what the Buddha said about them. But he says about them in general that the perfections also provide one of the few reliable ways of measuring the accomplishments of one's life. Accomplishments in the realm of work and relationships have a way of turning into dust, but perfections of the character once developed are dependable and lasting carrying one over and beyond the vicissitudes of daily living. Thus they deserve to take high priority in the way we plan our lives. These two facts are reflected in the two etymologies offered for the word perfection, which is parami in Pali. They carry one across to the further shore, which is param, and the further shore is basically awakening, nibbana, and they are foremost parama, of importance in formulating the purpose of one's life. Formulating the purpose. So not just sort of side qualities nice to develop, but formulating the actual purpose of a life. And so they're treated or um, offered as practice, as as, uh, things we can cultivate experiences of mind and body that we can cultivate, we can train in. They don't just happen randomly. They're not just, you either have them or you don't, accident, you know, don't know how this got here, this kindness or truthfulness, but actually through intention, which involves obviously knowing what they are and wanting to cultivate them, attention, and then the real practice. Um, We can actually increase these beautiful qualities in our hearts and minds. And so tonight I want to talk, as I said, about patience or kanti because it's such an essential quality for long retreat. Have you noticed yet? Um, This is not a quick fix kind of practice. 
And the longer we practice, the more we see that. The more we see how contracted and confused this heart and mind can be and what actually the possibility might be for awakening, what that might actually get intimations of the depth and the power of that. So whether you're here for four weeks or eight weeks, it's a long time, but, you know, only part of this journey that we're on. And these days, as we've said, meditation is becoming so popular. I've seen so many, you know, in magazines and online, the five-minute meditation, quick and easy, you know. I'm like, what are they thinking? (laughs) I just looked it up before I came over here, and there was like, the first page was just full of all these different places and, and all the words were like quick and easy or successful or you can do it or relieve stress. It's like five minutes. Anyway, let's not go there. This is the longer view of practice that we're taking here, definitely. And so we need patience. You are all patients. Waiting for your practice meetings, doesn't that feel a bit like the doctor's waiting room? You literally, patience. Um, and the word patient is derived from the Latin pati, pati, I don't know Latin, meaning to suffer. So sorry about that. <laughs> There's actually a great story of um, Ajahn Chah, who we've mentioned, he's that great Thai forest meditation master, teacher of Jack Cornfield, Ajahn Samedo and many other uh, people who visited IMS, our sister center, um, many years ago, when at IMS they were mainly uh, practicing in what we call the Mahasi style, which is the fundamentals of what we teach here, but um, there's a lot of emphasis in in very um, minute noting of experience and everyone really slowing down. You know, if you walk, there was only one way to walk, lifting, moving, placing, you know, really slow. So uh, Ajahn Chah was visiting, and his monasteries, he teaches a more natural style of practice. He just basically says, sit and walk, be in nature, you know, be in the community. Then your mindfulness and, and practice will deepen. So more of a uh, natural kind of practice, and he saw all these people, they're all bundled up, you know, it's IMS, and they're bundled up in their shawls, and they're creeping along, looking down, looking a bit glum, and so he walked out, uh, IMS has a beautiful front lawn, and there was a bunch of people out there, and he went up to each one, and bowed, and said something in Thai, I don't know Thai, and they're all kind of, oh, Ajahn Chah is blessing me, he's blessing me, and later, the, when they got back into the hall and with the translator, they said, what, what was he saying? What was he saying to us? And the translator sort of smiled and said, he was saying, I hope you get better soon. <laughs> I hope you get better soon, too. But don't have to do it that way. So, patience. We do need to slow down a little, but we have to find the right pace, you know, retreat pace that supports mindfulness. Um, But patience isn't a quality that's much appreciated in our society, right? It's not, here in America particularly, it's not a patient society. Everything is fast-paced, instant, right? And it doesn't have a 
positive connotation for most of us, especially, you know, from childhood. It was always like your parents telling you, you know, be patient, hold on, hold back, wait. It's not happening yet, you know, the long road trips. Are we there yet? No, just be quiet in the back, driving. You know, waiting for dessert. You can't have dessert until you've finished your meal. You can't have your birthday presents until X happens or Christmas or whatever it is. So there was always a sense of patience was this impediment to what we wanted to have happen. But here on retreat, we need to develop that quality for ourselves. No one is here telling us, well, I guess we are, I am, but <laughs> you need to develop your own training in it because I'm not, not going to go around, you know, slow down, be patient. But I'm sure you've noticed there is nothing, nothing slower than a walking or a sitting period if you're impatient, right? How many times have you... Uh, had a practice leader up here, and you're like, they've fo- forgotten the bell, they've, 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 they're not looking at their watch, you know. If you had that experience yet, we always do, like, when are they going to ring the bell? And you're sitting there, tick, tick, tick. 30 seconds have passed. Anyway, opposite of patience. So we need, you know, because all, all we get is that over and over again, every sitting, every walking. And so this is a great place to practice this powerful quality because what patience allows us to do is actually be present. If we're always tumbling forward into wanting something to be over, I mean, what's next? The sitting ends, what's next, (laughs) right? Another walking. You get to your walking, you're like, I can't wait and get back to sit, right? This walking period. Have you noticed that? <laughs> so we need, we need patience. We need it in, in, in every way possible. Because there will be difficulty on retreat, you know? The body, the mind will resist, will ache, will complain. And so patience and developing acknowledges that will happen. But as I said, it allows us to meet experience more fully. Because patience is connected to the perception of time, as I've been saying, and difficulty, right? We don't talk about being patient with bliss or contentment. Have you ever said, oh, when is this going to be over? You know, this overwhelming bliss and happiness. No, there is a perception of time and some difficulty or challenge. If time was irrelevant, patience would be irrelevant, unnecessary. And I think we already used the term that the power of places like Spirit Rock and and the schedule that we undergo here, especially on long retreat, is we're in what's called, we call the timeless realm. Time is not important here. You know, you need to get to the sit back and forth, etc. But have you noticed? Apart from laundry day, (laughs) pretty much the same day over and over again. So what's the rush? You know, where are you going? Another sit. And maybe the meal time, I could see that, but... Everything else. So patience. The dictionary definition is bearing or enduring pain, difficulty or provocation or annoyance with calmness. That's not a bad definition because it added the calmness. But patience as a parami takes it to a whole nother level. It's not just tolerance. 
it's not just enduring, though it has those qualities in it, but it's, it's got this sense of constancy and equanimity. And once you truly start to explore patience, you'll see it brings with it or uh, develops all of these other beautiful qualities of kindness, of acceptance, of allowing, all come with patience. Sharon Salzberg, in her wonderful book, um, Heart as Wide as the World, says, true patience is constancy. The consistent willingness to see this moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. So really allowing us to drop in and see that possibility. Patience is not about gritting one's teeth and saying, I'll bear with this for another five minutes because I'm sure it'll be over by then and something better will have come along. That's our usual attitude, like waiting for it to be done. And we think that's patience. She says, patience is not dour and it is not unhappy. It is a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. Patience is a great power. The Buddha talked about it as being both the highest austerity, as in renunciation, and the highest form of devotion. I love that you can put those two together. An austerity, so there is a giving up or a letting go in patience, because we're letting go of what we think or want to have happen. But devotion, it means we're actually resting our heart on whatever is present and allowing it to really fulfill itself. So it is a full body experience to be truly patient. We can't kind of be half in, you know, that's not patience or that's also just suffering. It's a commitment to being present with what is, with these qualities that I've been mentioning, this calmness, this constancy, this willingness, taking whatever time we need to be with whatever it is in our experience with this knee pain, this memory, this heartache. Or even, you know, really taking the time to see the clouds moving. If you just look up and straight a- look away straight away, you don't see the cloud. The clouds look like they're fixed or the fog coming in. We need patience to really be in nature and let it, let it in. And it's also a willingness, or it allows us to see the big picture and take the long-term view. You know, we're so used to the quick fix. If something's not right, fix it. Guy talked about samsara as the urge to correct. That's the opposite of patience. It's like, it's not right, fix it. I was really um, inspired by Van Jones. He's an African-American commentator, author, activist. And he says... uh, He's been inspired by Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., and Ella Jo Baker, who've been through much worse than he has, but never give up. He says, I've had one bad election and some bad tweets, and I quit. I can't do that, and I will tell you, you cannot, especially this younger generation. They can't quit either. I'm a ninth-generation American. A ninth-generation American, Joan says emphatically. I'm the first one in my family born with all my rights. My relatives didn't quit, and I'm not going to either, and neither should these young people. We're just getting started. So that willingness to not be caught up in turmoil, but 
step back, see the big picture, what's needed. And what he's talking about is what we call in practice the long enduring mind. This is so essential, necessary, because practice is always slower than we might want, wish, right? Slower than we might think it should be. Someone has this great definition of spiritual practice as the constant lowering of expectations. (laughs) Maybe this month or two month retreat might do that for you too. It's reality, right? You know, as I said, when the more you see, the the more you see you don't know, what is it? The more you see you don't know, the more you don't know? No, that's not it. Anyway, something like that. Anyway, the long enduring mind, get back on track here. Um, As I said, uh, it's really important in spiritual practice and uh, very much associated with this Chinese uh, Chan master monk, Zhu Yong. And he wrote an autobiography called Empty Cloud, which I highly recommend if you want a view of a long enduring mind. You can find it online. He was born in 1840 in China. He lived for 120 years, and he always, as a young man, wanted to practice and his family wouldn't let him. He actually ran away many times trying to find a place to practice, to practice. He twice spent three years living in caves and on mountaintops practicing on his own. And in one of these periods, he says, for the next three years, I ate grass and pine needles. And when I read that, I thought, you can't live for three years on grass and pine needles. But... Some uh, editor's note says that means lived, lived a very austere life. Very austere. I drank water from the mountain streams. After a while, my shoes wore out, as did my trousers. I was left with only a tattered robe. As my beard and hair had grown over a foot in length, I tied them up in a knot. I did not speak to anybody, as they were frightened by my piercing bright eyes. They ran off thinking I was a kind of mountain spirit. During the third year, I just wandered about on the mountain eating wild herbs. Time had slipped away from my mind. And he speaks about the clarity of mind and the sense of spaciousness and freedom that he discovered in that period. But something told him that he didn't quite fully understand. So came down off the mountain and tried to find a master. Traveled around, finally found one. And he says, I told him my story, and he asked, who had told me to practice like this? I said, because enlightenment was reached using these methods amongst the ancients, so I followed them. The master said, well, you know how they discipline the body, but how about the mind? He continued, you have wasted 10 years of training. You are completely on the wrong path. So what would you say or feel if you had just done six or ten years or whatever it is of completely austere and devoted practice and someone told you you've wasted your time. I'd be a little grumpy, wouldn't you? Anyway, he didn't bat an eyelid. He immediately said, teach me, and followed this master, followed this new path, and deepened enormously in his practice he became enlightened at the age of 56 after 30 years of intensive practice 
before and after his enlightenment, he did many pilgrimages, journeys on foot, some of which, many of which, he did prostrations every three steps, full prostrations, traveling through Tibet and India and Burma, all on foot. And then, given his age and how long he lived, he lived through the coming of communism in China and all of the upheavals, and somehow found a way to stay alive and to practice and to continue to teach. It's an amazing story. The things he went through, I mean, for us, are unimaginable. We, we can be grumpy if we have a double room, you know. He's living up there in the mountaintops, uh, eating grass and pine needles. <laughs> so no complaining about miso soup. I like miso soup, I'm not complaining. So, patience and the long, enduring mind. We need it. We can feel the benefits of it for ourselves, certainly, but we benefit from other people's patience, right? We, we're here because we're the, bene- we're the beneficiaries of the Buddha's patience, both pre-enlightenment, the Buddha-to-be, in all of those eons of lifetimes that he cultivated, these qualities, Post-enlightenment, he taught for 45 years, wandering around northern India on foot, teaching whoever wanted to listen, all kinds of people. People argued with him and disagreed with him and walked away from him. You know, there was wars and factions all around. He continued to teach. We're the beneficiaries of our teachers' patience and the practice that they went through, you know, the austerities and the retreat time, um, We're the beneficiaries of people who have the long enduring mind to build retreat centers. You know, and Spirit Rock in many senses is relatively new, um, but it took much longer than we thought it would to get built. We put the first buildings on in about 1990, those temporary trailers that took 25 years to go away. We, we, get, we had five-year permits for them when we put them on the land. We thought, five years. We should be able to raise some money and build some buildings. Well, we did build some buildings, but we didn't build enough to replace them. So 25 years we had those buildings. And now we sit in this hall because of the vision and enduring mind. And then the, the new community meditation center. You know, that was 10 years of planning. If we, if we'd, you know, now when I think, Gosh, if something takes 10 years, 2027, no, I'm not going to be around, do that. But if we had said that 10 years ago, we wouldn't have those new buildings and facilities. Like the cathedrals, the great cathedrals in Europe, or wherever, wherever there are great cathedrals, most of the people that had the idea to build and started them didn't see them finished, right? They took generations to build, but they... They had that vision, and now we're the beneficiaries of, of those inspiring buildings. People who plant trees. You know, what, I heard this saying, what's the best time to plant a tree? You know? Yeah. Someone said last year, I heard 20 years ago, what's the second best time to plant a tree? Now. Because it takes a long time. Planting a tree is is a gesture towards the next generation, right? But we, trees are here. You know, there's obviously the the natural forest, but so much of what we need to do now is plant trees for the health and the well-being of the planet. 
And I love the quote that Guy used um, from the book we're reading, uh, Book of Joy from Desmond Tutu on Nelson Mandela. So I wanted to repeat it because I think it's powerful because, you know, he was in jail for 27 years and many people might think, well, what a waste. You know, he could have been out being an activist and what could, imagine what he could have done if he wasn't in jail. And Desmond Tutu kind of shakes his head and says, the 27 years that Nelson Mandela spent in jail were necessary. They were necessary to remove the dross. The suffering in prison helped him to become more magnanimous, willing to listen to the other side, to discover that the people he regarded as his enemy, they too were human beings who had fears and expectations, and they had been molded by their society. And so without the 27 years, I don't think we would have seen the Nelson Mandela we had we we had with the compassion the magnanimi- magnanimity the capacity to put himself in the shoes of others imagine what patience he cultivated 27 years often in very difficult conditions hopefully we don't have to have that extreme a lesson but there are opportunities everywhere to practice patience as i keep saying here on retreat But in our lives, it's a constant um, opportunity. If you've ever, if you have or you're around children, what is it, what is one of the foremost things that you need to practice? It's like putting aside your timeline or agenda for the sake of these other beings and really seeing the world through their eyes. There's this story, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'd like it anyway about Monica. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her shopping cart. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss and the mother said quietly, now Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long now. Soon they came to the candy aisle and the little girl began to shout for candy. When told she couldn't have any, she began to cry. The mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The Monica said serenely, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man who had observed them followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. The mother replied, I'm Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy. So maybe you speak to yourself, only one more sitting to go. You, know, so you, can, you can do it. But life and patience, you know, if we're impatient, so much becomes difficult. Have you ever done any renovation or construction in your home around here, you know, here? It takes twice as long and costs twice as much as you think. 
waiting in line. Don't we always seem to get in the wrong line as though there's, you know, those few minutes are so precious? Costco is a great example of that. Like, which is the right line? And it's somehow a, a, a statement about our wisdom or, or clarity that we, which line we pick, a reflection on who we are. But here we are on retreat and it's essential to be with, as I said, this heartache that's coming up, this mind state, this, this challenge in our back or our feet or wherever it is that we're hurting. We can't will it away. Patience allows us to soften in to things and see them as they truly are without wishing them to be different, wishing them away. And so essential for our mindfulness. Shanti Deva, who was this great um, Tibetan master's uh, teacher in the 8th century. Oh, actually, he, he wrote the Bible, the handbook on um, the Paramis, the Bodhisattvas, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, where he just goes through each one and talks about how he has practiced with them. And so he says this about patience. Those who cause me suffering are like Buddhas bestowing their blessings. That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? Since they lead me to liberating paths, why should I get angry with them? Don't they, this is a question, don't they obstruct your virtuous practice? No, he says. There is no virtuous practice greater than patience. Therefore, I will never get angry with those who cause me suffering. If, because of my own shortcomings, I do not practice patience with my enemy, it is not they, but I, who prevents me from practicing patience. Now, he is training in the Bodhisattva vow, so that's a high bar, but just that capacity of forbearance, of acceptance. And um, for the Dalai Lama, Shanti Deva is one of his greatest influences, often teaches from that text, um, refers to him as a great inspiration. And again, this is from the Book of Joy, speaking in a, in a more personal way about this practice. Dalai Lama says, with a deeper understanding of reality, you can go beyond appearances and relate to the world in a much more appropriate, effective, and realistic manner. I often give the example of how we should relate to our neighbors, and this is appropriate in this time in our country. Imagine that you were living next to a difficult neighbor. You can judge and criticize them. You can live in anxiety and despair that you will never have a good relationship with them. You can deny the problem or pretend that you do not have a difficult relationship with your neighbor. None of these is very helpful. Instead, you can accept that your relationship with your neighbor is difficult and that you would like to improve it. You may or may not succeed, but all you can do is try. You cannot control your neighbor, but you do have some control over your thoughts and feelings. Instead of anger, instead of hatred, instead of fear, you can cultivate compassion for them. You can cultivate kindness towards them. You can cultivate warm-heartedness towards them. This is the only chance to improve the relationship. In time, maybe they will become less difficult. Maybe not. This you cannot control, but you will have your peace of mind you will be able to be joyful and happy with your neighbor, whether your neighbor becomes less difficult or not. That's patience. And really working with what we can work with, what, what we can actually train in. 
But patience isn't that easy, obviously, otherwise we'd just do it, right? We'd just be patient. What's the biggest barrier to patience? Impatience. What's impatience? It's actually interesting to look at. It's an it's a unusual mix or an interesting mix of both aversion and desire, right? Because we're not liking what's happening, and we're, but we're wanting something else to happen more quickly. So again, you'll probably have many opportunities here to practice with impatience. Explore it. How, does you, how do you feel it in the mind and body? Can you name it or even recognize it as impatience? This is important. And with impatience, there's a message that this moment isn't okay. I want to get, be somewhere else. I want to be, feel something different. And it comes out of some idea of what should be happening. And it's the theme of modern life, right? Instant everything. Get it now, get it quick, like the five-minute meditation. Everything is about efficiency, speed. You know, it used to be faxing was like so revolutionary and fast, and now it's like, you know, instant everything. If you wait a few seconds for a page to load on the web, it's like, come, come, you know, what's wrong with the internet? Something's slow here. It's, it's everywhere. Instant everything. And again, America is famous for this, right? Drive-throughs were such a revolutionary way of getting food. You didn't even get out of your car, you know, but that's old hat now, right? Now there's, I've, I've looked this up, or I, I don't know, somewhere there was an article I read where I found this. There are drive-through churches, Drive-through funeral viewings. <laughs> drive-through weddings in Las Vegas. Don't even need to get out of your car, you know. You, you drive, you know, the, the priest chaplain opens a little window. Yep, yep, okay. <laughs> so it's no wonder that we come on retreat and we're asked to do this very weird thing of going slowly and not having anything very much be very different. And we get frustrated, we get impatient, and we want it to happen. As a cartoon, I like it, yeah, I'll say it. Um, so it's a um, group of monks and it's a protest. And there's a monk up front with a, was it a megalo- megalophone? Megaphone, megaphone. And the other monk's down there and the monk is saying, what do we want? Mindfulness, when do we want it? Thank you. <laughs> Have you ever been in the airport when, a f- when your flight has been delayed or many flights delayed? Just feel the energy there. And most of those people are not going anywhere in a hurry, but they are frantic, right? You know, with their phones and in line and upset. Most of the time, it's not anyone's fault, but they're haranguing the poor people on the other side of the counter. Uh, I remember a number of years ago now, I was uh, flying to IMS to teach a retreat with Christopher Titmus. And we were getting on the same flight early morning to get to IMS, which is in the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts, to open the retreat that, that night, that same day. And we got to the airport and our flight was delayed like two or three hours. And I became frantic because, you know, I was fairly new to teaching. I was like, we've got to get there, the retreat, the retreat, so important. And, you know, I'm on, I, we didn't even probably have a cell phone there, but what, you know, can we go to Hart, uh, where is it? 
Hartford? Can we go to Hartford? Could maybe New York and drive, rent a car? You know, I was, and Christopher's just looking at me with this smile on his face. He said, let's just go get breakfast. I'm like, oh, okay. He said, we'll get there when we get there. The retreat will start when it starts. Like, oh, okay, that's, that's much more comfortable. So, and, you know, I've heard these stories, again, fl- traveling, because it brings up stress for people. Of, you know, people like, as the plane is taxiing, I mean, there's nothing going on. It's just taxiing, but the seatbelt sign is still on. People, you know, getting up and trying to get the luggage down and get to the front of the getting off the plane queue and the flight attendant saying, sit down, sit down, you can't get in. And this one woman just completely ignored them and, I don't, you know, went to the front or whatever. They called the marshal. She got her, She did not go anywhere very quickly. She got arrested. But it's just this mindset of, you know, I, I've got to get where I want to go. And it's so much suffering when you feel that energy. Another barrier to patience is resistance. Anyone have any resistance to any aspect of your experience here this week so far? They go together, impatience, resistance. Believe me, I, I know this on, especially long retreat, I would be so resistant at times to walking meditation. It's kind of plodding. I'd have this path that I would go to and I'd just feel it plodding down. And, you know, so I'd look like I was walking, but every ounce of me was wishing to be elsewhere. And, you know, looking at the planes going overhead. L.A., is it going? Can I get on? You know, Miami? Anywhere, you know, rather than just walking. And I realized when I looked at what resistance is, because in resistance we create this fantasy right of being somewhere else, that there's a momentary pleasure in the fantasy. But fantasy is fantasy. I was not on any plane. I was doing my walking down by the garden at IMS. I I saw this uh, one line from Calvin, Calvin and Hobbes, a cartoon, to make a bad day worse, spend it wishing for the impossible. That's resistance. It's this fantasy. And I just, well, actually, I should finish the story. I was practicing at IMS. One of my revered teachers was Ms. Wilson sitting over here. I told her this experience of resistance, and she just goes, that's just a habit in her inimitable way. But I realized it was just a habit. I had a habit of just feeding the resistance to doing something I didn't like, even though I was doing it. And I saw it over and over again. I go to a lot of meetings here at Spirit Rock, and I'd be in the car driving to the meeting, grumbling. Why do I have to go to this meeting? I'm going so many meetings, too many meetings. Why this meeting? Why me? You know, uh, couldn't we do it? Uh. And I'm like, I realize I'm in the car driving to the meeting. I'm going to. Why add the grumbling and the resistance? It was just dukkha, and it was the same in the walking meditation. Better just to do it than to grumble about it, because that's just suffering. The walking in and of itself is just walking. So resistance is a barrier to patience and being present. And then expectations. When we have some idea or agenda about how things should be, and it's not matching up, right? But what are expectations? What are agendas? Again, they're fantasies. There's some mind-created idea or ideal about what should be happening, and usually not so helpful. Often not even realistic, right? Um, And so we have to really see when we're feeding that, because it's just another form of suffering. It just creates more dukkha. 
So when we actually land in the present moment, let go of the agendas, the ideals, the expectations, can often find, as uh, people have been saying in the interviews, oh, that's more pleasurable than indulging in my fantasy world. That's just fleeting, you know, totally without base. Here is where I can actually land. So this quality of patience allows us to do that to be present for our experience, whatever it's like, but particularly when it's difficult or challenging or even just neutral. And believe me, if you haven't got used to neutral yet, you're going to, you need to. There's a lot of neutrality on a long retreat. That's a good thing. But most of us are so used to the highs and the lows that we think something's wrong, nothing's happening. And as teachers, we might say, well, look a little closely. Do you think it might be calm or, you know, quiet or stillness? Oh, we're so used to labeling nothing happening, bad, wrong. Neutrality. Neutrality in meditation is good. It's a good thing. It's like very close to equanimity. St. Augustine says, patience is the companion of wisdom. meaning it allows us to see things clearly, allows us to see the Dhamma. And it's very um, allied with equanimity. As I said, patience brings all of these good qualities with it and allows these good qualities to develop. And Shantideva, again, has this great line that's a bit like the serenity prayer. It's probably the serenity prayer is developed from it. Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what's the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? Dalai Lama quotes that all the time. So our practice is about seeing clearly, not being caught in the illusion, as Guy was talking about this morning, of past and future. Past is gone, future not yet to come. Patience is what allows us to bring the steadiness to that experience as it goes through all its changes, all its ups and downs. And with patience comes ease and acceptance and calm. Again, all of these beautiful qualities of mind and heart. So I want to finish with this um, poem by Mary Oliver called Stanley Kunitz. And Stanley Kunitz was a neighbor of hers who was also a poet. Um, but she, she speaks about seeing... Well, I'll read the poem rather than telling you what it's about. Stanley Kunitz is a, a poet. Uh, she does make a reference to Merlin, who's the magician from the Knights of the Round Table kind of thing. I think, whatever it is. I think that's the only unusual reference. Stanley Kunitz. I used to imagine him coming from the house like Merlin, Strolling with important gestures through the, through the garden where everything grows so thickly, where the birds sing, the little snakes lie on the boughs, thinking of nothing but their own good lives, where the petals float upwards, their colors exploding, and the trees open their moist pages of thunder. It has happened every summer for years. But now I know more about the great wheel of growth and decay and rebirth, and I know my vision for a falsehood. 
Now I see him coming from the house. I see him on his knees, cutting away the diseased, the superfluous, coaxing the new, knowing that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience, yet willing to labor like that on the mortal wheel. Oh, what good it does the heart to know it isn't magic. Like the human child I am, I rush to imitate. I watch him as he bends among the leaves and vines to hook some weed or other. Even when I do not see him, I think of him there, raking and trimming, stirring up those sheets of fire beneath the smothering weights of earth, the wild and shapeless air. Knowing that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience. You could say that about our practice in one view, long enduring mind that there's a deepening that happens and an opening to insight, a story of the Buddha's enlightenment and many countless millions since then. But that doesn't take away the fulfillment in this moment that we get from landing fully in this moment that the cultivation and the training and the blessings manifest in the here and now. They can't manifest anywhere else. So both are true, that the hour of fulfillment is is buried in years of patience, and here and now the blessings and the benefit of patience in our practice are to be known and felt. And so through this cultivation, through this intention, we discover the magical garden of the heart that Mary Oliver spoke about. So let's just sit with patience, letting the words dissolve into silence. And thank you for your attention, a little over half an hour for walking.
till our last sit together with the chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.